morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me wish you a happy birthday. This week we celebrated our 11th birthday as Providence Bible Fellowship. I'm very grateful for that. Grateful to still be worshiping together and and pursuing Christ's likeness together, spreading his gospel together. Hallelujah. First Peter 3. Please stand with me as we prepare to read this text. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. We covered the first six verses last week. This morning we'll, we'll focus on verse 7, but we want to read the whole thing. First Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first of all for the gospel about which we have sung this morning and and through which we have prayed about which we have meditated. We thank you, Lord, for the many ways that you have bestowed upon us to live out this gospel and to commend it to the watching world. We thank you for how you have called us to commend the gospel through this wonderful gift of marriage. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to consider this text, that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to see it rightly and to apply it in a way that glorifies you and in a way that speaks of the truth of the gospel so that others will see that Jesus really is the Christ. We pray, Father, that he would be on our minds as we study this word. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we know that Peter wrote this text to the church in a a Greco-Roman culture. And these words that he writes, two husbands would have been profoundly counter-cultural. Wives in Greco-Roman culture were not allowed to leave their homes by themselves unless they were escorted by a male. 
A wife couldn't eat with her husband and his guests. Women were regarded as inferior to men in every way. Pandora's box that many of us are familiar with in Greek mythology was emblematic of this culture's view of women. They were responsible for the unleashing of evil on the world. Roman law gave husbands absolute control over their wives. Uh, a Roman husband owned his wife and all of her possessions. He could divorce her for leaving the house without wearing a veil. Now, we, we don't live in the Greco-Roman culture. Women in our culture enjoy far more rights than did the women of Peter's day. And some would say that this is because we have become enlightened. We've, we've learned from mistakes of the past. I would suggest to you that that is not the case and that our culture has simply found different sinful ways of expressing the brokenness of gender relations. We, we find two truths taught early in the Bible regarding the genders. The first is that men and women are the same. They are, they are equal in the sense that they are both created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 teaches us this. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Male and female are created in the image of God. Men and women are equal in that way. Second truth taught early in the Bible is that men and women are different. They, they are not the same. They have different roles, different, unique, blessed ways of expressing the glory of their creator. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, as we find God recognizing that it is not good for the man to be alone. And so he he specially designs a woman for the man to, to help him. Now, our culture is right to recognize the, the equal dignity and value of women. They're right to do that. But in, in a warped, sinful attempt to rectify the mistreatment of women in the past, we've sought to fix that by treating women like men. And if... if, if women were honored the way God intended, our culture would not expect women or allow them to function like men in society, doing things like fighting in wars and protecting our culture, our communities from dangerous men. If women were honored in our culture as God intended, we would recognize that there are inherent differences between men and women, differences of dignity, differences that do not disparage either sex, but differences which glorify God and bring honor to male and female. If women were honored as God intended in our culture, we would not mask the unique way that women glorify God by their femininity. We currently mask it all the time by masculinizing femininity and by feminizing masculinity. And we demean women when we do this. We dishonor God who created them, male and gloriously female. The Bible would teach us that mankind will only flourish as distinctively male and female, created in God's image and embracing these good roles that God has given them. And the only way, the only way that our fallen culture can do that, can flourish as male and female, 
is not, it's not going to happen through a bunch of marches or scandals or, or, or social activism. It's not going to happen that way. The only way that fallen mankind can flourish is through the transforming power of the gospel. Only the gospel can do this. Only the gospel can do this. And Peter speaks to the Christian husband here saying, preach this by living this. Preach the gospel by demonstrating the gospel's reclamation of God's good gift of gender roles. You demonstrate this by how you treat your wife. Commend the gospel, men, Peter would say to us. Remember, this entire section that we're in, right here in the middle of 1 Peter, is about commending the gospel. And this is the unique way that Christian husbands do so. We do it by being countercultural in our care and reverence for our wives. And it's a great kindness to the Christian husband and wife that God gives a word here in the middle of 1 Peter 3, packing so much into one verse. The main idea here, and the first point in your notes, is that Husbands must live with their wives according to knowledge. Husbands must live with their wives according to knowledge. If we look at that first part of the verse again, verse 7 again, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, let's consider the grammar, shall we? That is always fun. We don't have three different commands in this verse, so that we're saying, First, live with your wife in an understanding way. Second, live with your wife as the weaker vessel. And third, show honor to your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. It's not three different commands, but rather we have one main imperative. The rest of the verse explains that imperative. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Or to, 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 to explain it more clearly, express it more clearly, we could say live with your wives according to knowledge. There are, there are a number of ways that we have misunderstood this verse over the years. One of those is to say that the command here is to just be an understanding guy. When she burns the meatloaf, just give her a second chance. When she's got a headache, give her a break. When she wants her mother to come over for, for a whole week, accommodate her. Just be an understanding guy. Now, that's not the idea. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I highly recommend it. But it's not what this is talking about. Another misunderstanding, and this is a misunderstanding that I have espoused as I have taught this, this verse in the past. And that, that is the idea that, that what is being communicated here is become an expert on your wife. Learn your wife. That's a phrase that I have used as I have taught this in the past. Meaning, understand your wife specifically. And to do that, you need to learn her. You gotta, you gotta talk to her. You gotta ask her questions. And you gotta do this novel thing. You gotta listen as she answers those questions. You get to know her. And again, fantastic thing to do. That, that is a wonderful, godly way to love your wife. The question is, is that what this means? Live with your wife according to knowledge. It is not. These words mean there are some things that you must know as a Christian husband, and knowing them, you must live in accordance with them. Live in accordance with these things, with the knowledge of God's 
will for husbands. That's, that's the knowledge that's being talked about here. It's not specific knowledge about your wife, which you are wise to seek out. But specifically here, we're talking about knowledge of God's will for husband. Now, what specifically might that will be? God's will for husband. He tells us in the rest of verse 7, she's a weaker vessel. She's to be honored as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you don't treat her in this way, you will be sorry. That's, that's the idea. That's the knowledge that a man needs to live in accordance with. So let's go back through those things one at a time. We've got our main idea here, live with her according to knowledge. So secondly, Christians, Christian husbands must live with their wives according to knowledge, knowing that they are weaker vessels. Knowing that they are weaker vessels. Look at how the ESV renders that portion of the verse. It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The, the, the ESV has the phrase showing honor before the weaker vessel part. And that is, that's a remote possibility grammatically. It's better to understand it as coming with the fellow heirs of the grace of life clause, which we'll get to shortly. The, the, the only reason that I tell you that is that I don't want you to think that I'm skipping the show her honor part. Okay, we're not ignoring that. We're just not getting to it yet. Husbands, live with your wives, understanding that they are Weaker vessels. And vessel, first of all, is the same word that, that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2 as a metaphor for humans as instruments for God's work. We've sung several songs this morning uh, about ourselves as instruments of God's work. Vessels for the Lord to push his gospel throughout the world. That's the word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2. And it's the same word that we find in the Greek version of the Old Testament for those instruments of worship in the tabernacle. So when we know that, we, we may be reminded, oh yes, Peter, back in chapter 2, he used all of that tabernacle language to refer to the church. It's likely that he has this same thing in mind as he uses this word vessel here. He's using the word as a metaphor for believers as instruments for God's work. Every believer is a vessel for the Lord to do his thing in this world. We are his vessels. Husbands, your wife is a fellow vessel. And specifically, he says here, she is, she's a weaker vessel. In what way? In what way is she weaker? I would suggest, in, in agreement with, with every commentary that I, that I read, that when Peter says weaker, he means more physically fragile and vulnerable. Not weaker in every way. She's physically weaker. She's not mentally weaker. She's not morally weaker. Not spiritually weaker. Not even emotionally weaker. You know, the, mo the most handicapped emotional per people I have ever known have been men. The, the, the expression of emotion is not weakness. The inability to express emotion is is weakness. In the New Testament, as we look through the New Testament, we will, we, will, we will come up empty if we look for places where we are taught that women are weaker than, than men in any way other than the physical. That women are physically weaker. This would seem to be an obvious thing, but I, I saw a YouTube video not long ago where a, where a biologist, a female, if you can imagine, Claimed this as biological fact. She had the audacity to say on a college campus that men are physically stronger than women. And she started a riot. 
This is how troubled our society is when it comes to this gender stuff. We can't recognize biological facts without receiving a mortal wound to our psyche. This, this, is, this, this isn't an insult that, that, that Peter makes here. It's just reality. God has created two genders. They are not the same. They are different at the cellular level. And among those differences is that men are physically stronger than women. Our, our, our politically correct culture is about to have to decide whether it wants to champion the gender fluidity camp or the feminist camp because uh, biology is starting to demonstrate that the emperor has no clothes, as they say. This is becoming painfully obvious in the realm of competitive sports because there are biological males who believe that they are females and they're championed in that by this culture that we live in and now they are competing against biological females in sporting events and beating the hound out of them. So how's the culture going to handle that? How do you champion women while allowing men to be better women than them? This is insane. Men are stronger than women. This, this, this shouldn't be controversial. And as believers, we can't afford to be embarrassed by this. We have a God to obey. Husbands, I, I, I would take... Peter's point here, th th this idea that, that our wives are weaker vessels as both an exhortation and a warning. Now the warning would be, by implication, do not assume that your wife is weaker in every way than you are. You need her. Now listen, any, any married man here who can't agree with the things that I'm about to say either has a gargantuan pride problem or he's been married maybe like five minutes. Okay? <laughs> All right? Men. Isn't it the case that your wife is at times mentally tougher than you are? Isn't it the case that at times she is morally stronger than you are? I, I've described my wife on numerous occasions as the guardrails of my conscience. She has been so strong when I have been so weak that were it not for her, I would not be qualified to be an elder today. I'm certain of it. Hasn't, hasn't your wife at times been spiritually more faithful than you? Isn't she often emotionally healthier than you are? Only a fool doesn't seek his wife's counsel. Only a fool doesn't value his wife's strength. Don't make the mistake of thinking that she is weaker than you are in every way. She is often more than you are just when you need her to be, just like you are often more than she is just when she needs you to be. Don't undervalue her. That is the implicit warning. But there's an exhortation, and I would say that it's this. Understanding that she is physically weaker, live with her in that way, in accordance with that. Now, exactly what would that mean? Your wife is in a vulnerable position because of who she is in the Lord. She is made in the image of God, just like you are. She has plenty of strengths that offset your weaknesses. Many times she knows better than you do the wise course to take, and yet her master has called her to submit to you. On top of that, God has made you physically stronger than she is. You are in an extraordinary position to take advantage of her. She is incredibly vulnerable. The idea here is to treat her like a more 
fragile vessel, easily abused. Again, we're, we're not saying anything about her mental state, her emotion, emotional nature. We're not saying anything like that, that, like that she's more easily morally corruptible. None of that. She is vulnerable. She is easily used because God has called her to submit and because she is physically weaker. Some husbands are foolish enough to read the first six verses of this passage and regard those verses as their personal ticket to fulfillment. And they take this command to their wives to submit to husbands. They take that command as their ticket to easy street. And they lord their authority over their wives. They demand respect from their wives. They command them like slaves. And some husbands even physically manhandle their wives to intimidate them. Other husbands abuse their authority through extreme passivity and neglect, forcing their wives to serve as a second mommy to them. That's a form of soft tyranny against your wife. Husbands, we have to understand that perhaps the greatest threat to our wife's security is our own sinful hearts, our own propensity to abuse our God-given authority. How do you use your wife's vulnerability against her and for yourself? That is a crucial question this morning. And you want to get it answered because of what we're going to see later on. How do you, what is your tendency to use your wife's vulnerability against her and for your own benefit? Your own spiritual health rides on this. Regard your authority, brothers, as nothing like a license and everything like an enormous responsibility and great potential danger. God will require an account for how you use it, just like he did of Adam in the garden. Recognize that you, you, you've got power to do great damage and that God expects you to control that and to use your authority for her good. Live with her according to knowledge, knowing that she is a weaker vessel Husbands also should live with their wives, according to knowledge, honoring them as fellow heirs. Honoring them as fellow heirs. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. There is no command in this text for the wife to honor her husband, and that is striking. It's not that we can't find that anywhere in Scripture. Paul commands that at the end of Ephesians 5. But here, there is a command for husbands to honor their wives. It's the same word that the apostle used in 2.17 when he said, honor the emperor. Same word. To honor means to revere, revere her, hold her in the highest esteem, respect her. Some of us, some of us husbands are very sensitive to the way our wives speak to us, aren't we? I'm raising my hand. We are, we, we are extremely sensitive to the smallest hint of disrespect. Here's an important question, given the fact that the Holy Spirit has inspired a command for the, the husband to honor his wife. 
Are we as careful in the way that we speak to them as we would like for them to be in the way that they speak to us? Do we measure our words in the way that we speak to our wives? Do we require other people to be respectful to them? Do we allow our children to talk to our wives as if our wives are their little sister? Do you, do you revere your wife? Peter gives ground here for this exhortation. He says we should give honor to our wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. That, that, that God has given men and women different roles in the home and in the church does not mean that believing men are more Christian than, than believing women. Pastor Jason already read to us from Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read to you again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you have been baptized into Christ, male or female, you are in Christ. All who are in Christ are equal. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. Now this does not mean that there's no such thing as gender roles in the church and in the home. Clearly there are. The apostles are not schizophrenic. Paul's point in, in Galatians here is that we are all saved the same way by faith in Christ and that in Christ we are equal citizens of the kingdom of God. We may have different roles, but we are equal citizens. And if your wife is a believer, she is a saint. She's an heir of the, of the grace of life. She's an heir according to promise, as, as, the, as Paul says here. You do not hold a greater share in the promises of Christ and your wife does. She's an equal citizen in the body of Christ. We've already talked about Genesis 1.27. She, she is equal by virtue of the fact that she too is created in the image of God. You remember that Paul was a Roman citizen? As we think through the book of Acts. That comes up several times. Paul being a Roman citizen. It's a big deal. There's a story in Acts 16 about... Paul and Silas being imprisoned after they had been beaten without being tried. Now that's a big deal in this country. It was also a big deal in that culture in one situation. If you were a Roman, that was a really big deal. So they did this to Paul and Silas. Beat them, imprisoned them with no trial. The magistrates then wanted Paul and Silas to, to leave the city quietly. But listen to what Paul said in, in Acts 16.37. Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Something very similar happens in Acts 22. Paul's in trouble once again for preaching the gospel. And he's being stretched out. He's about to be scourged when he reveals to them, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. The centurion hears this and he goes to the tribune and says to him, what are you doing? This guy's a Roman citizen. The text says that they withdrew from Paul in fear. There were terrible consequences for mistreating a Roman citizen. 
Listen, brothers, your wife is much more than a Roman citizen. She is, she, she is of far higher status. She's a citizen of heaven. She's a daughter of the king himself. Her brother is Jesus Christ. Her brother poured out his blood to bring her to the Father. How then should she be treated? With as great respect as you would treat anyone. And we should do this because the Lord commands it. We should also understand why he commands it. He commands it, of course, because she is made in the image of God. But a, a second reason that is, that is found throughout this letter is that it commends the gospel. This commends the gospel. How is that? How is it that when we honor our wives, we shine the light of the gospel to the world? We saw this last week that male leadership and female submission to marriage, this is not an evil development of the fall. Rather, it's part of God's good pre-fall creation. God created marriage with this authority structure in place, and the Bible says that God looked at everything that he, he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, there, There's a ton that could be said about Genesis 3 and the fall there, but one is that what took place there was a rejection of God's good design for marriage. We find it in, in all of these tiny little details of the story. Who does the serpent go to? He goes to the woman instead of talking to the man as God had done. And neither the husband nor the wife have any problem with this, it appears. The woman leads. The husband follows. That's not my interpretation. That's God's interpretation that we find in Genesis 3.17. The wife led and the husband followed. And one of the results of that whole mess is that they both became hardwired for this kind of kicking against God's design. The wife became enslaved to a desire to dominate her husband. The husband became enslaved to a desire to abuse his authority, either by passively neglecting her as Adam did, or by domineering over her as many other men in his line have done since. Sin has made a mess of marriage, just like it's made a mess of everything else. Whether you're married or not, sin separates you from God from your conception during the, this life and for eternity. When, when we die, the rightful judgment for our rebellion against God is eternal hell. We cannot save ourselves from the penalty of sin any more than we can save ourselves from bad marriages or from our centuries-old attempts to dominate one another. We are hopelessly doomed in ourselves. The gospel is the good news of how God in Christ has made all things new. Jesus lived perfectly in submission to the Father on this earth, like Adam didn't do like none of us have done. And he gained a spotless record of right, righteousness. Even though he didn't deserve it, he then died on the cross in our place as a substitute, bearing the wrath of God for our sin. He was raised three days later, demonstrating his victory over death and his right to give life to whomever he chooses. So that now everyone who repents and trusts in him is forgiven. And given eternal life, reconciled to God, transformed into the image of Christ. What we see in this gospel story is a Christ, a husband, pouring out himself for his bride, the church, and giving her what? Honor. Peter's already mentioned it twice in this letter. 
that we receive honor as believers given to us by Christ. Those who believe in Jesus, we're not only freed from the penalty of sin, but we're enabled to live differently than we did before. And what does that mean for marriage? It means that those who believe in Christ are enabled to enjoy marriage the way that God intended. And additionally, our marriages function as a billboard for the gospel. When, when Christian marriage works the way that God has intended it to, when it grabs hold of the gospel and lives in accordance with the gospel, according to Ephesians 5, what we find is a bride who joyfully submits to her husband and a husband who pours himself out in love for his wife, a picture of Christ and the church. And this is where that countercultural phenomenon of a Christian husband treating his wife with great honor is so powerful. This is where men who love Jesus should make it their life's pleasure to love their wives well and to honor them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Men, you have an enormous opportunity to push the culture in this direction of honoring women and seeing the truth of the gospel by living that gospel in the way that you care for and honor your wife. Love your wife, value your wife, honor her like no one in our culture does or can. Treat her as your equal while recognizing her unique vulnerability. And do not be embarrassed or apologized to a culture that might call you backward for this. Let the world see your wife flourishing under your loving care and authority. Show them Christ pouring out his life for the church. Commend the gospel in these things. Now here, here's perhaps the most sobering piece of knowledge that, that, that Peter gives us. The most sobering piece of knowledge that should guide our lives as husbands. Failing to heed the other components of the knowledge that we have, we've already discussed will be spiritually devastating to us. Husbands must live with their wives according to knowledge so that their prayers will be unhindered so that their prayers will be unhindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Could this possibly mean what it seems to say? That... Your prayers will not be regarded by God if you disregard the knowledge by which you are called to live with your wife. Some have wondered if perhaps Peter is saying it's the man's own praying that is hindered. In other words, Peter perhaps is writing that the man who mistreats his life won't want to pray. I could certainly see that being true, but is that communicated here? Well, look closely at the wording. It is not his praying that is hindered, but his prayers. Prayers that have been uttered. His prayers. When he prays, God will not hear him. Now, how can we know that this is what Peter has in mind? Well, first of all, I would, I would suggest that it's the plain understanding of the words. But most importantly, just a few verses later in 312, Peter quotes Psalm 34. Writing, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. 
But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. P Peter's given us the key right there to understand verse 7. God's ear is open to the prayer of the righteous. His ear is not open to the prayer of the unrighteous. His face is against them. There's a similar idea in Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18, which reads, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Cherishing iniquity in your heart. That is precisely what you are doing when you mistreat your wife. You are cherishing iniquity in your heart rather than the Lord Jesus is holy. God is a God of justice. He does not take kindly to the mistreatment of the vulnerable. Wives are in a delicate position in that they are physically weaker. And by God's design, their role in this relationship is to submit to their husbands. What recourse does the wife have? Ultimately, the justice of God is the wife's recourse when she is mistreated. She must trust her master, knowing that he will judge her husband. And husbands, you can be certain that he will. The cross proves that God is a God of justice. I encourage you to read the prophets of the Old Testament. Look specifically for God's disposition toward those who take advantage of the weak, who abuse their authority. It's throughout the prophets. Read, read, read any of them, but read all of them. And if you are guilty of ignoring the knowledge that we have found in verse 7, and then you read the prophets and you see God's disposition toward those who abuse their authority, it will keep you up at night. Because there is another theme in the prophets, and that is the theme of judgment in the form of being cut off from God. Let me just give you a smattering of, of texts from the prophets. Hosea 5.6. With their flocks and herds, they'll go to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Isaiah 1.15. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Jeremiah 14, 12. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. Jeremiah eleven eleven. Behold, I'm bringing disaster on them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Now, these prophets were the vocabulary of Peter's mind. And they echoed in his thoughts as he wrote these words at the end of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. And I, I'm, I'm tempted to say, may God help the tyrant who abuses his authority over his wife. May God help the man who treats her as if she can't be injured, who treats her as if, as if his greatest care shouldn't be restraining the power that God has given him. May God help the man who, who, who does not consider his first priority to protect his wife from himself. I'm tempted to say, may God help that man. Because in my, man, my mind, God is the only one who can help anyone. But this text would suggest that it's highly doubtful, doubtful that God will help that man. 
And so, brothers, if you are in the habit of treating your wife as less than a fellow heir of the grace of life, if you habitually deny her honor, if you do not protect her from your own propensity to abuse your authority, when you need help, where will you go for it? I read Psalm 121 this morning. It was greatly comforting to me. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The man who abuses his authority over his wife should not regard Psalm 121 as a prayer that he should even bother praying. Because when he calls for the Lord, the Lord will not listen. Remember that your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a daughter of the king. How foolish is the man who mistreats her under his watchful eye. Let not that man appeal to her father for help without repenting of his sin against her and against the king. Now, some of you realize this morning that you, that you need to repent. Today is the day. Today is the day. Right, right, right now. Do it right now. And to confess to your wife, express repentance to her, and ask her forgiveness. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. And then I would suggest some prayers to make a daily habit. First prayer, husbands, this, uh, this authority is not something to be relished. It is something that we should desperately fear to possess without walking closely in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And so one prayer that we should pray daily, is we should hold out this authority to the Lord Jesus and say, have your way with this. This authority is yours. You use it. Second, we should use all known means to fan into flame our own affection for the Lord. It, it's, it's love for the Lord. Not first and foremost, love for our wives. It's going to move us to do what Peter has commanded here. We must love Jesus above all things. And so we must pray, Father, give me the power of the Spirit to love Jesus as you love Jesus. And may the love that, that you give me for Jesus, may that move me to, to, to pursue him in the Scriptures and to pursue him in prayer, to gauge with other saints unto fellowship with him, unto even greater affection for the Lord Jesus. I desperately need Jesus in me to be a godly husband to my wife. Third, we need to maintain extremely sensitive consciences, don't we? Particularly as it pertains to our treatment of our wives. And we should pray, Lord, as I'm dealing with a daughter of the king, a weaker vessel, please bless me with a highly sensitized conscience. Help me to be quick to repent, quick to seek forgiveness, quick to give honor so that I might commend the gospel and please you. How desperately we need the Lord Jesus. And how kind of him to forgive our sins. How kind of him to, to forgive us when we repent. And to once again hear our prayer. Brothers, if you failed your wives, this is not the end of the story. Repent. Turn. Seek the Lord Jesus. And let, let, let us be like our older brother who has loved his bride so well. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and how he has saved us from our sin, how he has rescued us from our slavery to those terrible consequences of Genesis 3, wherein we we despise the good gift that you've given us and we desecrate it. We thank you that you have... You have released us, freed us from slavery to that. Father, help us to live in light of that gospel that we have been freed. Christ has not only removed from us the penalty of that sin, but he has given us new life so that we might live differently. We pray, Father, that we would love him with such an intensity that we would want nothing more than to commend his gospel to the world and that in our marriages we would do that by honoring our wives, living with them in an understanding way. Father, if there, are, if there are brothers here who habitually abused their wives in any way, pray that you would bring great conviction upon them, bring them to repentance, Lord, that your gospel may not be defamed anymore that you would heal, heal our marriages. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.